Welcome back to Midwretched, our lovely, lovely friends. Welcome back, friends. We hope you're doing well out there. We're doing well over here. Yes, we are. It's been a good week in Midwretched land. Yay. The weather's nice. The plants are in the ground. Yeah, for one of us at least. My plants are not purchased yet, but I, the weather's nice. I mean, technically, my dad always said Mother's Day was mm-hmm. the first day to plant. The last official frost date for our region was May 8th, so mm. you are yeah, that's about right. fine. Yeah. yeah, we're fine. I mean, I always plant after Mother's Day because I usually wait until school's out because I'm so busy uh, running the marathon that is teaching in May, so... I am incredibly impatient, and the only thing that brings me joy is plants. Mm. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> Soon it will be dogs. Yeah. But. Yeah. Today, teaching in May is, like, the worst. <laughs> oh, God, I can imagine. And the kids really, like, forget themselves a little bit, so. hmm Like, I had a little girl today say, she just, like, stopped me, and she's like, are you even allowed to have tattoos? <laughs> And I said, what do you mean? And she said, like, are you allowed to have those at work? And the girl next to her was like, you're stupid. She's an adult. She can do whatever she wants. She's a 25-year-old adult. And I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. You're like, you know what? Nobody's in trouble today. (laughs) No, yeah. (laughs) Shout out to Redbox for my retinol prescription. (laughs) Ooh, nice. No, I truly don't look 25, but it was nice. It's okay. Yeah, kids have no idea. But that was like a good moment amidst all of them just like losing their shit collectively simultaneously. <laughs> so. oh. Yeah, I can I can only imagine my mm. kiddos, my clients are like losing their shit over finals and AP exams and Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. It's yeah. tough. Chicago is a hellscape for any high schooler. Yeah, no, it's really it's really bad out there. It's really weird. That whole like high school application system just trips me out it's scare tactics it's like the most effective scare tactics i've ever seen Mm -hmm. for like oh you have to do good and be perfect and then they like drill that message into children from like fifth grade yeah that's a really nice to have to pay to unravel with a therapist in your mid-30s like super helpful the kind of toxic perfectionism that drills into a person were you, like, at my therapy session two hours ago? Were you at my therapy session two hours ago? <laughs> my therapy homework is to ask my husband why he likes me. Oh, my gosh, really? And to try to believe that. Oh, yeah, my therapy homework is to hang out with you and to go to the batting cages with my husband because we really like the batting cages. Oh, that's cute. And we haven't gone in a long time. So, yeah, that's my therapy homework. <laughs> Anyway, I'm Tommy. I'm Mick. And this is Midwretched. Welcome to Midwretched. You've yes. just heard about our therapy goals and homework. Yeah, and we hope that you have your therapy goals and that you're doing your best out there. Yeah, that's all we're trying to do. But today yeah. we have a story to bring you down. We sure do. <laughs> Are you feeling happy right now? Not for long, friends. <laughs> have you experienced joy? Let us huh? take that away from you. <laughs> I mean, I... Yes. That's accurate. This case uh, I decided to do because um, I was experiencing joy when a a (laughs) wonderful friend of mine who I love and adore endlessly, um, she likes to take me away and take me on like romantic weekends together. And (laughs) 
we were in Grand Rapids and I thought, uh, why haven't we done a case in the Grand Rapids area? So mm-hmm. I was kind of like looking around, looking around, and this one really stood out. It's not uh, in Grand Rapids, but one of the victims lived in the same county and it ended up just being a really interesting uh, case and a really interesting piece of Michigan judicial history. So ah, that's why it's our case today. Yeah. I'm excited to hear that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to bring us to June 3rd, 1997. 19-year-old single mother Rachel Timmerman told her mom she was going on a date with a man she met at work and that she would be taking her 11-month-old Shannon with her. About a month later, Rachel's chained and bound body would be pulled from Oxford Lake in Nuego County, Michigan. Starting heavy. I know. It is. But uh, like I said before, as the case unfolds, it becomes a really significant story in the landscape of Michigan criminal justice. And so um, I wanted to kind of start with a deep dive into the history of specifically capital punishment in Michigan, because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even to time prior to white settlers. So Groups of indigenous people native to Michigan and their surrounding states are called the Anishinaabe, and that is made up of um, three predominant groups. There were a couple of other smaller groups, but the three predominant groups were the Ojibwe of the UP, the Ottawa of the North and Eastern Mitten, and the Potawatomi of the Western Mitten. So those three uh, groups were known as the people of the three fires and they uh, share a lot of obviously kind of cultural history and language um, but also a lot of practices as far as kind of how they handle legal matters and well what would you know, like legal, legal matters, matters yeah. and tribal legal matters and things like that so even though the, in many ways the three different groups are very different from each other there were some there are some overarching kind of ideals and and things like that that kind of craft that how this stuff worked prior to white settlers in Michigan. So the one thing I'll say first is that a lot of smaller issues were privately settled amongst people. So uh, it wouldn't necessarily involve working with a tribal council or anything like that for something smaller like um, theft for example. So uh, if I stole something from you, we would kind of work it out between us, between our families, and you would probably get to take something from me or I would have to give you something or offer you something to kind of compensate for what I did to you. Um, And so smaller matters were settled very much interpersonally. For more detail, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a bit from a really, really good book called The People of the Three Fires, The Ottawa, Potawatomi, and Ojibwe of Michigan, which is by three people, uh, Clifton, Cornell, and McClurkin, who kind of put together a really good set of um, just kind of how larger matters were settled. So the big kind of overarching idea was that the most important thing is respect for the individual. The idea that no one person uh, should determine the fate of another person. So, you know, what matters of life and death in in any situation where it was possible for somebody to not decide that for another person, they should not, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that personal actions were a result of personal decisions, but that all of our behavior has an impact on other people. We can't act like our behavior is in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ideal really, I think, created that culture of, um, you know, kind of settling things interpersonally because, you know, we there's this understanding that our behaviors really impact each other and that none of us are operating 
you know, outside of other people. I think that's pretty reasonable. Something it's totally maybe, reasonable, right? Maybe Americans could take hold of. Yeah, as I was reading this, I thought like, there's some really interesting nuggets in here that I would be curious to see applied to like ideas around prison reform and abolition that I need to kind of, I think once school is out, do a little bit more thought work on. Just churn up a little bit. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but you know, in extreme cases, which were pretty rare, such as murder or rape, particularly rape of somebody else's wife, the most common type of punishment was exile. So people being cast out of communities. Uh, but there were occasional executions as well. But mm-hmm. exile was used more commonly. That kind of social shunning uh, was more common than execution. So, uh, and again, because of that idea that the, the fate of, of one person should not be decided by another person. So there's kind of this like resistance to the idea of kind of like what some people would call playing God, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that reminds me of a specific instance on a New York subway, maybe. Mm. Um, That was in the news that maybe people shouldn't play God and shouldn't pretend that they're like Judge Dredd. Yeah. No. No one should be Judge Dredd. Judge Dredd should not be Judge Dredd. No. No. Mm -mm. No. No, sir. No, sir. So, you know, that brings us to the first white settlers in Michigan. So... The first white settlers in Michigan actually settled in Sault Ste. Marie in the UP. Uh, This was the French voyageurs, basically, and Father Marquette, who set up a Catholic mission site at Sault Ste. Marie in 1668. So that really was where, and I, I was, I didn't realize that actually, that like Detroit or some of these like lower lower state cities weren't first Mm -hmm. and I feel like I should know this because this is like the history of my mother's family but I learned (laughs) I learned um we're all doing our best yeah we're all doing our best out here so what's interesting to me is that between 1668 when that first settlement popped up and 1846 there were only about a dozen executions in the state of Michigan Mm -hmm. which is unusually low for that time period yeah. Um, one thing that might skew that number a little bit is that a lot of people, not a lot, but some people that were tried for murder in Detroit were sent to Canada for execution. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, that number may be a little bit higher, but it's not a lot higher. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that like relative to other states, that's a very, very, very low number. Yeah. Part of me wonders if it was kind of a kind of a cultural through line um kind of starting with kind of what was going on prior to white settlers and then the fact that those early white settlers were catholic and catholicism has been for many hundreds of years uh very much an anti-execution faith set yeah so i kind of wonder if that's where at least some of that came from Mm -hmm. i just thought it was interesting i can see that yeah So Michigan's last execution was in 1830, and that was actually seven years before it became a state. So Michigan becomes a state in uh, 1836, 36, 37, one of those. And it's actually the only state in the lower 48 to never have an execution upon admission to statehood. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So the last one was in 1830, but it was actually officially abolished 
1847. There weren't any in between 1830 and 1847, yeah. but it was officially put on the books by the state legislature in 1847. This is not a death penalty state. Yeah, yeah. So the only other states that have not had executions since their statehood are Alaska and Hawaii. So I thought that was really interesting. Huh. Yeah. So just consider that backdrop a little bit when we talk about kind of what else happens in this case. So um, I'm going to take us back to 1996. I started off with a little bit from 1997. So I'm Mm -hmm. rewinding back another year to August 6th, 1996. Rachel Timmerman was invited to a poker night with her friend Wayne Davis, who she just knew, um, I think probably through her dad and her brother, Mm -hmm. as well as a high school acquaintance named Mikey Gabrion and Mikey's uncle Marvin. Rachel had a pretty tough upbringing. She, at 19, was a single mom. She um, was raised by a mom that was kind of distant and wasn't abusive, but just kind of did the minimum, really. Um, So Rachel was, like, largely unsupervised when she was growing up, Um, occasionally hungry, missed a lot of school, stuff like that. Enough to draw the attention of social workers and things like that at school. When she was a teenager, she, you know, fell into the local party scene, uh, dabbled with drugs, things like that. Um, But she really connected with her social worker, Jackie, who she was paired with when she was 13. And Jackie actually became a friend of hers for the, the following years and was very close to her, even after she kind of aged out of, of like, you know, having a kid social worker, right? <laughs> There's got to be a better way to say that, but I don't have it in my head right now. So, so wait, she was her social worker, but then they just stayed friends after the therapy was completed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, shady boundaries from a professional standpoint. I know, I know. But, you know, looking at Shannon and just thinking about just how much she needed somebody to kind of mother her in a way, like... Yeah. I'm glad that she had Jackie, even though it was kind of professionally a, a very much a blurred line. Um, Not really blurred. Yeah, very blurred. So, Not really blurred at all, actually. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, pretty... Pretty black and white line. Yeah, well. But I get it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it goes. I mean, I think, I think circumstances being what they are, sometimes it's natural to want to blur those lines. But, but Rachel really turned her life around when she got pregnant with Shannon. She was only 18. She'd had a little bit of legal trouble of her own, nothing major, just like minor drug charges and stuff like that. But uh, when she became pregnant, she did a total 180. She threw herself into having a healthy pregnancy, being a good mom. She really wanted to be a a good role model for Shannon. She, yeah, she consistently worked. Uh, She wasn't in a relationship with Shannon's father. His name is Rick, and he actually moved to Florida not long after Rachel became pregnant, but he, you know, visited on occasion. He lived in Florida, but he would come back because his mom was in the area, and Rachel actually was close to his mom, Kim. So uh, his mom was really involved with Shannon, and, you know, she was, Rachel was doing her best, you know? So the invitation comes to go play cards with these guys. And she's a 19-year-old single mom. She is stressed out. She is worn thin. <laughs> and she is happy to go to, like, a casual, fun little get-together. Have right? any moment of just, like, we're just going to have fun. We're just going to hang around. Yep. Yeah. So what happens next, uh, there are two different stories that get told in two different sets of court documents. 
So it's unclear which one's actually true as far as whether this happened before or after the card game. Okay. Either way, they are either going to somebody's home to play cards or they are leaving somebody's home to play cards. But it's Rachel, Marvin, Gabriel, Mikey, and Wayne Davis in the car. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Marvin is driving. He pulls over and he kicks the two other men out of the vehicle. He then drives to a secluded area and violently beats and rapes Rachel repeatedly. Jesus. Yeah. So uh, to set us in space a little bit, secluded areas are not hard to come by in Mm -hmm. the town of Cedar Springs, Michigan. (laughs) This is a very, very, very small town. It's on the border of Kent County and Nuego County. Very rural area, very heavily forested, uh, lots of dirt roads, things like that. So, Ooh, it's pretty. It's really pretty up there. It's really pretty up there. I love that area. Um, I was noting to myself that uh, Highway 131 runs through that town. Mm -hmm. And I think of 131 as like my vacation highway. (laughs) Because if I'm driving north on 131, I'm inevitably going somewhere beautiful. Yes, 100%. Yeah, and it just makes me feel very, um, just makes me happy. Like it fills me with a lot of joy. So um, that was one of my little like personal slices of relationship to this area i want to go there it looks so pretty it's lovely it's really lovely it's definitely i think in many ways like on the western side of the state Mm -hmm. once you get past grand rapids going north you really feel like you're up north um it's so heavily forested you start to see a lot of um, those small lakes and beautiful rivers and um the trees change it gets that Mm -hmm. like northern feel to it (laughs) and i think if you're in the midwest that is like a vacation feel you know oh yeah oh 100 percent. yeah like for me there's the moment where the trees change yep when you're traveling north that's like oh like a just an exhale you know it just becomes extra lush and extra green Mm -hmm. and uh. yeah so all that to say like it was not hard for uh, Gabriel to find somewhere r- very secluded where nobody was going to hear what was going on. Rachel survived the attack, which was a brutal attack. He beat her. He bit her nose, like took a chunk out of her nose, and then he drove her home. What is up with all these biting incidents lately? I know. I feel like I'm bringing you a lot of biting. I'm sorry. These, like, very cannibalistic, aggressive bites. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird... It doesn't... I don't know. I mean, what does that... What does that communicate to you? Like, to me, it doesn't necessarily communicate a power move. It's almost like animal rage, you know? Yeah. Like, loss of control, bloodthirst. Mm-hmm. It's also extremely intimidating. Like, it's extremely scary to think about an adult person just coming at you and biting you. you yes. Know? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, Rachel goes home. She is, she lives with her mom and her sister. That night, she she gets in. She is crying. She's dirty. She's messy. Mm-hmm. But it's not until the next day that she tells anybody about it. So the next morning, she calls Jackie. She's she's weeping on the phone. She's crying and crying and crying. She calls Jackie, and Jackie's like, what happened? Do you want me to come over? And Jackie comes over, and she finds Rachel 
um, obviously beaten mm-hmm. and um, shell-shocked, can't stop crying. She's really, really shaken up. Through her, um, through her tears, Rachel is able to share what happened the night before. She says she does not want to go to the police. She does not believe that anyone is going to care about something like this happening to her. Mm -hmm. She did not have um, much, I think, self-worth at this time in her life. Um, And she just didn't think that it would matter. She didn't think anyone would care. Jackie was able to convince her, okay, maybe we don't go to the police station. Let's go to the hospital. We'll get you checked out. We'll get you cleaned up. Mm -hmm. You'll tell the people at the hospital what happened. And Rachel agreed to that. Okay. So. It's something. Yeah, it's something. They drive to a nearby hospital. The hospital, you know, they she speaks to the doctors there, and the hospital calls the Nuego County Sheriff's Office. And they send over Detective Dave Babcock, who is a really lovely dude. So uh, she tells the story to Babcock, and through telling the story again, and I think through being at the hospital and seeing that, there were people there that cared. She grew in her courage about this and decided mm-hmm. that she wanted to press charges against Marvin Gabrion. Good. Yeah. So Babcock contacts Gabrion, and uh, Gabrion agrees to come to the station the next day. But he doesn't show up. Instead, he sends a five-page fax. Def- <laughs> yes, he sends a fax. Uh, okay. Defending himself. And stating that it was a totally different story, that it was Rachel's idea that they have sex, that it was consensual, that she wanted to perform oral sex on him, but he did not want to have actual intercourse. And because of that, she was mad and wanted to teach him a lesson by making a fake rape allegation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, it's yeah. 1996, so this will probably fly. Well, uh, he also, he's a smart guy, Marvin Gabrion, and he also, in the letter, accounted for why Rachel would be messy. He wrote that the car got stuck in some mud, and she actually had helped him push it out, which was why she was going to show up muddy and messy. So he had an answer for everything. Can you hear my eyes rolling? I know, right? Like right out of your head and rattling onto the floor. Mm. He even went so far as to suggest that she had actually removed his sperm from her mouth and put it in her underwear to frame him for the rape. Oh, my. F- Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. But you're not quite on the nose about the other stuff. Uh-huh. The brutality of her injuries and uh, Dave Babcock actually also tracked down Wayne Davis, who corroborated the idea that the two other men were kicked out of the car. He was able to say where and when. Um, So between that and the extent of Rachel's injuries, Gabriel was very quickly arrested and charged with rape. Mm -hmm. Good. I'm glad. Because that's atrocious if he would have gotten away with that. Yes. Well, he did not stay locked up for long. Of course not, because it's still the 90s. Yep. He made bail two weeks later. His bail was actually posted by Wayne Davis, which I think as we continue to talk about Marvin Gabrion is going to make sense because in some ways I think that he sort of created or tried to create a little bit of a cult of personality around himself Uh and the idea that he could get Wayne Davis to post his bail after Wayne Davis was part of the reason he was arrested in the first place, I think speaks to that. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm interested to hear this. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's a really topsy turvy, honestly. So that's the the late summer, and there's a, a trial date set for summer of '97. Trial date is set for June 5th. Okay. Earlier in 1997, uh, in January, Rachel was actually arrested for a violation of probation for a previous drug charge and she spent a couple of months in jail too so uh, she was released on may 5th which is exactly a month before she was set to testify against gabrian when she was released she was really 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 scared because he had been making threats um he had been calling the house sending letters um driving by, things like that. And so when she was released from prison, she actually moved out of her mom's house, moved into her dad's house to try to throw him off by being somewhere else. She got a good job at a nearby fast food restaurant, and she was starting to talk about going back to school. Nice. And really just, it seemed like, tried to kind of pour herself into productive things to do while she was really nervously waiting for that trial date yep fill up the nervous energy Mm -hmm. put it in something else exactly she was still really scared though and she did kind of waffle a little bit about whether or not to actually testify at one point gabriel had told her that he would kill shannon her baby in front of her before he killed her so that she could watch shannon die before she was killed Jesus fucking Christ yeah so the the threats that he was making were gruesome and unhinged yeah yeah and she called the sheriff's office on a couple of different occasions when she saw him because she wanted to be clear that she felt like she was being stalked that he Uh was plotting to hurt her yeah yeah so this brings us to June 3rd which is the day that I opened up with Rachel did she report any of those threats? Sorry. She did. Yeah, she did. She did. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. So they were on record. Okay, they're good. documented. Yeah. They, they're they very much documented. Um, none of it was enough to cross a legal line. It's legal to be a shithead, unfortunately. So there wasn't really much that police could really do. But there was a paper trail. Okay. So it's June 3rd. The trial is June 5th. Rachel is very excited to be going on a date with a nice guy from work. His name was John Weeks. He had been calling her several times, asking her for a date. And, you know, she's reluctant to date as a single mom. And the thing that kind of tipped her over was that John was like, bring the baby with you. We'll do something like kid friendly, like a picnic or whatever. So that, yeah, that made her really excited. And so she was... And I think also very anxious about the court date and was happy to have a distraction and happy to have somebody like make her feel wanted and and good. Right. Who doesn't want that? Yeah. Rachel went on that date with John Weeks and Shannon and she never came home. Yeah. The next day, her her dad received a letter. Her dad's name is uh, he's got a full name, but he goes by Tim, Tim Timmerman. He receives a letter. I know. He's, we're going to talk about kind of what he does a little bit later, but he's a sweetheart. Yeah. The letter is in Rachel's handwriting, and it tells him that she's sorry for leaving without saying goodbye, but she has met the man of her dreams, and she's going to elope. 
uh, and she'll write again soon. Mm-hmm. Now, Rachel was kind of a free spirit. Yeah. Everyone knew she was anxious about the trial. She had Shannon with her because nobody would have believed it if she had gone and left Shannon behind. Oh, yeah, yeah. But with all those factors in play, her dad and her two siblings and her friends and her mom thought that this was well within the realm of something that Rachel would do. Okay. So they didn't think of it as that suspicious. The person who very, very early on saw suspicion there was Shannon's grandma, Kim. Yeah. And her logic was that Rachel would never take Shannon far away from Kim. Mm -hmm. That it was too important to her that Kim have that good relationship with her father's family. So that that was very suspicious for Kim. But she was at that point, she was really the only one that didn't think it was real. And the note was in Rachel's handwriting. So... There wasn't this concern that it was, you know, a falsified note. Mm -hmm. The day of the trial comes around, and there are two key people missing from the courtroom. Obviously, Rachel and also Wayne Davis, who was set to testify about what had happened that night. Now, Davis had actually been missing for a couple of months. Uh, He was set to face his own trial for drunk driving in February, which he did not show up to. Oh, wow. There's a lot of... Like, petty crime going around. Yeah, yeah, there really, really was. Um, almost everybody involved in this case has some, certainly has a relationship with law enforcement. Um, so Wayne Davis did not show up to his own court date for his drunk driving charge in February, and he was not seen after that. He left notes for his family that said he was headed to California. And, again, nobody thought that was too wacky. Dodging this trial date did not seem out of totally out of character. Mm-hmm. And no one, there was not like there was ever like a missing persons report. He just left town. He's an adult. Yeah. He's allowed to leave, right? So, you know, the case could have survived the trial without Wayne's testimony, but it could not survive it without Rachel's. And Obviously. the charges were dismissed. Yeah. So those charges were dismissed. Another few days go by, and the county prosecutor and the judge both get uh, handwritten letters from Rachel. The letters are postmarked from Arkansas, and they go into more detail recanting her accusation against Marvin Gabriel, stating that she was mad, she wanted to teach him a lesson because of him, like, jilting her as far as having intercourse with him that night, and that the more she thought about it, she could not bear the idea of throwing an innocent man in jail. Okay. So... On June 14th, which was Father's Day that year, and also the day before Shannon's first birthday, another Arkansas letter arrives. This one has a little bit more personal detail. Uh, This one says that the dream guy, his name is Del, Delbert, uh, he's just gotten a new job. They're living a happy life in Little Rock. She loves Arkansas. She's thinking about staying there full time. And she's happy as a clam. I don't think that she told anybody that the guy she was going out with's name was John, not Delbert. Okay, I was wondering that. I was like, Delbert's a new name. Yeah, I don't think that she's shared it, or if she did, it was kind of in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Because again, for her family and friends, this did not seem super out of character. Okay. And the letters were postmarked Arkansas. It was in her handwriting. Yeah. All that. But again, Kim, the grandma of Shannon, her hackles are up. 
because she did not believe that Rachel would not be home for Father's Day. And she extra did not believe that she wouldn't be home for Shannon's first birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And that that seemed really outside the realm of truth for her. So at this point, she starts to kind of get on Rachel's family. And she's calling every day. And she's asking them, you know, do you really believe these letters? And unfortunately, they regret to this day that they did. And it's because they were in her handwriting. It was in her voice. You know, it sounded like her. It was her handwriting. The actions themselves were not super out of character for her. They were sad and they missed her and they were a little to a lot pissed off that she left, (laughs) but they weren't scared. They weren't alarmed. Mm -hmm. You know, did she ever? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I feel like it would be suspicious to not leave like, oh, I'll call you here. Here's my new phone number or some Mm -hmm. kind of way to reach her i feel like that would be that would raise a red flag yeah you know i i think it would for me too i just wonder like you know everybody is living in a degree of poverty yeah in this case i think if if you had told me that she couldn't afford to have a phone line set up yet or didn't have reliable communication that way or what have you Mm mm-hmm I think her family would have believed it. Okay. You know? All of this came crashing down on July 5th. Two men, Douglas Sorter and his son-in-law Nathan, are fishing in Oxford Lake in Nuego County, Michigan. As they are paddling around this little lake, it's not a very big lake. In this area of Michigan, a lot of these like small little lakes are really like boggy and kind of mud pits. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very still of water, very little current to them at all. But there are some fish that you'll find in there. And so Doug was out fishing with his son-in-law on July 5th. And they noticed that there was um, some cinder blocks floating in the water um, with red paint on them, chained to what they thought was a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. What have we learned? It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. I think we want to believe in our primitive little lizard brains that it's a mannequin, but it's never a mannequin. That's not our lizard brains that want to believe it. That's that's the up here that lies to us. Ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Our lizard brain is like, get the fuck out of get there. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Which is basically what they did next. So, yeah. They paddled their boat uh, a little bit further, and then uh, the smell hit them, and they realized that it was a body. They were scared. They hightailed it back to their truck and called the police. They were worried that whoever had put that body there was watching. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so they were really, really, really spooked. When law enforcement arrived on the scene, they observed the badly decomposed body of a blonde woman. She had been chained to 63 pounds of cinder block, which were padlocked, with her entire face duct taped, only her nostrils exposed, wrapped in chains, and her hands cuffed behind her back. Oxford Lake is, like I said, it's basically a mud pit. Doug Sorter, the uh, fisherman that discovered her, said that he described it as it didn't have a bottom to it. It just keeps going. He described, like, taking his own boat out there, dropping a 150-foot anchor line, and it kept going. Yeah. 
that's due to the mud and the muck. But I want to make sure that there's like a clear sense of what this scene looked like. What um, lake was it? Oxford Lake. It's tiny. There's two Oxford Lakes in Michigan. You're looking for the one in Monroe Township. It's itty bitty and muddy. And it's one of those ones where like there's not really a shore so much as it's like it just gets kind of boggy and boggy and boggy. And then slowly fades from. Yeah, it it kind of fades out. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Which is very, very typical of that area. Oh, that is tiny, tiny. Yeah, it's really small. So being that if this is a it's a small county, it's a rural county, Dave Pabcock took this call too. And he arrived on the scene alongside Michigan State Trooper Richard Miller. With the level of decomposition and the fact that her face was duct taped, there was no way to do any kind of facial recognition. Oh, jeez. Yeah. They were able to get some fingerprints, which was promising. The medical examiner also deduced that the woman had had a number of hip surgeries. And it had also had a C-section, but again, due to that decomposition, could be anywhere from 18 to 50 years old. Those details were published in the newspaper that there was a body found with a number of surgeries, as well as a C-section. Kim is reading the newspaper, and she immediately thinks of Rachel, who had had these surgeries on her hips when she was 13 or 14 years old. Uh, Yeah, and had also had a C-section to deliver Shannon. So she reached out to Rachel's family as well as the state troopers and fingerprints did prove that this was Rachel. Just random question. Why did she have the surgeries on her hips? Uh, I I don't know exactly. I think it was some kind of congenital just issues with her hips. Okay. Yeah. Did she have that thing where the ball and socket don't connect? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was nothing crazy. Yeah. I know that Kim described it as like the kind of surgery that old people would get. So, um, not like a full hip replacement, but I guess there are other hip surgeries that would be typical in older people. I knew a younger, I worked with a little kid that had on both sides of his hips, they, the ball and the socket didn't connect. Mm. So they had to do a complete like hip replacement on both sides. And he was pretty young when he had that done. I can't remember what the condition was called, but Mm. it was just a congenital thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and that's what this sounded like to me. Not, there wasn't like an injury, you know? Yeah. It was something congenital that she was dealing with. Now, with the discovery of Rachel's body, the question immediately becomes, what about baby Shannon? Yeah. Canines were brought out, uh, and they indicated that there were more remains out there, but oh, nothing geez. was found. Okay. This now becomes a kidnapping slash missing child case. The FBI is activated. FBI agent Roberta Gilligan comes in from the Detroit office of the FBI and takes on the case. Immediately, a $4,000 reward is offered to the public for information on Shannon's whereabouts uh, and or anything about Rachel's disappearance and her movements prior to. Her family and friends canvassed the area as well, going door to door. They were distributing missing posters of the blonde, blue-eyed, 27-pound baby's smiling face. But no credible tips came in. Immediately, suspicion pivots to Marvin Gabriel. There was a moment of suspicion on Shannon's father, Rick, but he was in Florida at the time, and there was really no bad blood between him and Rachel. So it was very quickly dismissed. It's just that you have to look at the men close to the person, right? I was going to say, they're always going to immediately go to family members, the mm-hmm. baby's dad, that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. It's due diligence. 
Yeah, it is. It was open and shut in that mm. sense. But Marvin Gabriel is a known violent person with a serious vendetta against Rachel. So mm-hmm. suspicion immediately pivots to him. Investigators are looking for Marvin Gabriel. They first try to go to his home in Eltona, Michigan, which is another town nearby. There's just lots of these little towns that kind of dot the area, questioning his friends and family where he was because Gabriel did not answer the door. He was not there. Nobody knew where he was, uh, or at least they weren't going to admit to it. When investigators did come to the house, though, they quickly observed a pile of cinder blocks that were splotched with red paint, much like the ones found on Rachel's body. Mm-hmm. They came back four days later with a search warrant, and they were um, also serving him on an open warrant that he had for a smaller charge, but he was again not there. So uh, his brother David was there at the time that the police got there, and David was taking items out of the house and loading them on a truck. Mm-hmm. It's unclear if David was trying to help Marvin out as far as covering up a crime, uh, because it was also known that uh, Marvin was in the process of trying to sell this house. So, you know, it's not clear if David had any real involvement in what was going on here. But they did notice that one of the items that David was loading onto the truck was a padlock that matched the one used to lock the chains to Rachel's body. He had also been... um, So he's been trying to sell this house. It's kind of a rundown house. It needs some repairs, right? So Gabriel uh, had hired this handyman, and he had told the handyman that if he didn't do precisely what Gabriel wanted, that he could frame this man for the disappearance of a baby. Okay. So he's making a threat related to the movements in this case. Mm -hmm. And this was prior to the discovery of Rachel's body that he was making these threats. Mm-hmm. So uh, witnesses, neighbors start to come forward. Obviously, they see the police poking around Gabriel's home. Um, and they obviously know Mikey, his nephew. They know who his, you know, who his peeps are, basically. And they begin to talk to neighbors. One of his neighbors, uh, a guy named Trevor, remembered that on the night of June 6, he woke up at around 4 o'clock in the morning to the sound of a very loud bang outside of his house. When he looked out the window, he saw Marvin Gabriel dragging a metal boat across the gravel in front of his house. He put the boat down and took from it some life vests, three cinder blocks, and some chain. He then rinsed out the boat with water and dragged it back into his garage, and then he ground off the registration numbers from the boat this is all trevor's observation Mm -hmm. yeah later that week he approached some people camping near the the river there's a um there's a beautiful network of rivers out there the little manistee and the big manistee river he was uh walking along the little manistee river and approached some people camping there asking if he could store some stuff at their campsite this was gabrian yep Mm -hmm. okay when he talked to those people he referred to himself as lance he did not give a real name And he said that he was with a man named John. He claimed that he was camping nearby, but that he wouldn't be allowed to park his motorcycle at the camp that he was camping at. And he was asking them if he could park his bike there instead. He then asked if he could also store his boat there. Uh, Those people observed that he had a black eye, scratches on his face, patchy hair missing. Uh, He obviously looked like he had gotten into a fight. And he told them that he had gotten into a fight with a friend. 
They saw him again a couple of weeks later, and they observed that he was wearing gloves, even though it was very warm outside. Mm-hmm. So these were some pretty interesting witnesses. Other witnesses that came forward was this guy, Lloyd Westcombe, who was a known associate of Gabriel's. Lloyd Westcombe was schizophrenic. He was on and off of medication, seen as somewhat unreliable, but that um, he did observe... Well, he told police that he had a conversation with Gabriel where Gabriel had told Floyd that he had gotten rid of his girlfriend, quote, permanently by binding her with chains and throwing her in a lake. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, because he has a history of schizophrenia, nobody's going to believe him. Exactly. It's like when it all comes together later, of course, it like gets added into the the litany of reasons that Marvin Gabriel's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. But at yeah. the time, I think like if he had come forward to say that, that like in isolation of Rachel's case, it would have been like, yeah, whatever, dude. Right. It makes me wonder because I'm picking up character traits of mm. Gabriel. What are you picking up? Power trips, narcissism, uh, a sense of control, a sense that he's smarter than everyone. Mm-hmm. Part of me wonders if he told this guy, whose name I forgot because I'm terrible with names. Floyd. Mm-hmm. Floyd. If he told him because he knew that nobody would believe him. Yeah. And yeah. he got a little power trip. He got off on telling somebody that he knew would have no consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's very accurate. I think that he he involved himself with people that were not going to be believed for whatever reason, either, you know, Lloyd's schizophrenia um, the other people that he was involved with, you know, have petty crimes on their dockets, things like that. So, like, he's not, I mean, I think I think you're right. Like, I think he's intentionally rolling with a crowd that people are not going to believe if they turn on him, right? Yeah. In his mind, in his estimation. Because he is also, at some points, um, Mikey, his nephew, would come forward later on to say that his Uncle Marvin would often talk about the fact that he could easily kill somebody by just weighing them down and throwing them in the lake. Yeah, this is a power trip. Yeah, it's a power trip. And he's shameless in his mm. discussions of these things. So Mikey Gabrian, he is very, very helpful to police. He leads police to a campsite that Gabrian used. I also think it's really important to note that Gabrian is extremely mobile. Mm-hmm. He has campsites he uses... He's got his home in Altona. He's got tracts of land that he owns in different places. And he is very willing to travel at the drop of a hat. He sounds much more well off than the people that he's preying on. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> okay, um, okay. I won't, I won't spoil things. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, and, and well... It's interesting. Like, he owns real estate. He doesn't own, like, great real estate, but he owns real estate. Yeah, yeah. And how he gets his money is really interesting. And we're going to talk about it in the end. So Mikey leads police to one of the campsites that Gabriel was known to use. This one was near Hungerford Lake, which is only 10 miles from Oxford Lake. Gabriel was not there, but at the campsite was his tent some bolt cutters, a chain, duct tape, a claw clip like you'd put in your hair, an unopened box of baby bottle nipples, and a receipt with Gabriel's name on it. Okay, well. Yeah. 
It is my personal theory that he held Rachel at this campsite for at least a couple of days. Yeah. I think he held her there long enough to get her to write those letters. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because I don't think he has those baby bottle nipples. I don't think he kept the kit. Mm-mm. He doesn't seem like that kind of offender. No, no. I don't think so either. I, I think that uh, the fact that those things were left behind at the campsite was more indicative of his sense of superiority, that he wasn't going to get caught for doing anything, yeah. Yeah. Um, that he can just like leave his damning evidence just wherever, and it's mm. not going to come back on him. But I think, be- you know, and like the family was so adamant that those letters came from Rachel. I believe that they did. I believe that she was coerced to write those letters by Marvin at this campsite anywhere from you know one to a couple of days how long of time was there between the letters because there were two right yeah well the first ones were sent um like right the day after right she yeah like right the couple of days after the 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 court date yeah. and then another set was sent about 10 days later on the 14th of june okay. so okay. yep but he didn't need to have held her for that long he could have had her write all of these things in one go yep and then kept them to then stagger their release, right? Yeah, because I was just thinking, I was like, it'd be a lot for her to keep, for him to keep her for almost two weeks. Yeah, to keep her and a baby. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he probably kept her for a day or two. That's yeah. my theory. If it's not clear already, Marvin <laughs> Gabriel did this crime, right? In case anyone had any questions. Yeah, I'm not going to be giving you a big, like, whodunit moment here. No. Whodunit is very clear. Another troubling piece of information comes out when investigators start to think, who was this guy that Rachel went on this date with? Who is this person? And they start looking for John Weeks. John Weeks was last seen on June 22nd by his girlfriend. Her name was Aileen. John told Aileen that he was headed for a dope run to Texas with Marvin Gabriel and we would be back in about a week or two. He never came back. She actually described catching John on the phone with a woman begging her for a date. We now know that that was Rachel. When she confronted him about it, because obviously you would, he said, (laughs) he's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's just a favor for Marvin. Mm -hmm. So she's like, well, fuck you about this. But, you know, when he disappeared off to Texas... I don't think that she saw it as a a big loss or something unlikely that yeah. going on a dope run was not going to be, again, out of character. Yep, yep. Gabriel's actual movements were in another direction. Uh, in the weeks following this, he placed an ad in an Indiana newspaper for a handyman and was contacted by a man named Ron Strevels. Gabriel met Strevels for a job interview near Strevels' home in Indiana, And Gabriel asked him some really specific personal questions, like the names and addresses of his parents, um, like mother's maiden name, that kind of stuff. (laughs) What was the name of your first pet? The street? Pretty much. (laughs) Yep, exactly. The color of your first car, all that stuff. Yep. He tells Strevels, who's like, these are some odd questions for a job interview. Um, He tells him that this is just information that I need for a tax form in order to hire you. A couple of weeks later, he calls Travels and said that he no longer needs him for the job, so he doesn't okay. get the job. The truth is, is that Gabriel would take Travels' information and use them to apply for a driver's license in Virginia. Yeah. 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 
And that after he gets this driver's license, he uh, uses it to attempt to buy a piece of property in West Virginia under Strebles' name. Yep. This was not the first identity that Gabriel had stolen. In 1995, he met a transient man in Grand Rapids named Robert Allen. Robert Allen was disabled and had a hard time with executive functioning, and it was very, very easy for Gabriel to take advantage of him. Mm-hmm to take his ID cards, to get his social security number, and Gabriel ended up applying for social security disability benefits as Robert Allen. Yeah. So he was, for several years, raking in social security checks under Robert Allen's name. He opened up P.O. boxes in Allen's name, uh, applied for an Indiana driver's license as Allen, uh, and attempted to purchase property as Allen. Uh, one thing about this that made me really sad was that you know, when Alan stopped coming to, he was known to frequent this shelter in Grand Rapids called the Guiding Light Mission. Mm-hmm. But when he stopped showing up, nobody thought anything of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for most shelters. Like. Yeah, it's common. And it's just really sad. Um, there's a couple of articles out there with the director at the time of that shelter talking about how um, at the time... He maybe thought, oh, we haven't seen uh, Alan here in a while, but didn't think anything of it and how much he really regretted not thinking anything of it. Yeah. But I mean, again, like you're running a shelter and Mm -hmm. you think, oh, maybe they're in the hospital. Maybe they found other place to stay. Yeah. Or they moved to a different city and are trying their, you know, trying their luck somewhere else. Who knows? It's a transient place by its nature. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but that was actually the last place that Robert Allen was seen alive. And he was last seen there in 1995. Um, When the so-called Robert Allen, a lifelong Michigan resident, attempts to open a bank account in October of 1997 uh, and change his address with Social Security to somewhere in New York, this tipped off the feds. That there was something not (laughs) kosher with Robert Allen's Social Security. Federal agents tracked him down to Sherman, New York, and there he was, Marvin Gabrion. Just hanging out. He was arrested on the spot for the Social Security fraud and brought into police custody. It was then very quickly figured out that he was wanted in connection to a much more insidious case, and that was the murder of Rachel and the disappearance of her baby Shannon. Mm -hmm. And so he was transferred to Michigan for those purposes. Right away, the authorities wanted him to provide hair samples. There were hairs found on Rachel's body. And knowing that, Gabriel, before he was scheduled to provide the hair sample, shaved his entire body, making it impossible for authorities to match the hair. Even though this was an evasive maneuver, while in custody, Gabriel told many inmates that he had killed Rachel and Shannon. Of course, because he doesn't think that anybody can catch him. Mm-mm. He told one person that, quote, she screamed rape and he had to take care of his business. He told the same guy that there was another body in the lake. He told a different inmate that he, quote, killed the baby because there was nowhere else to put it. And further told another person that he got rid of the baby because he, quote, didn't know what to do with it. Uh-huh. In a, so he's held for kind of a while as the case gets pulled together. He's still in jail awaiting trial by 2001. 
And at this point, he's trying to still like negotiate the property of purchases outside of while while in jail. Are you fucking kidding me? As though he's going to be able to get out and like deal with these properties. Shut up. You're um, going to prison. I know. The property that he was trying to figure out was a property around Oxford Lake. So Oxford Lake butts up against private property and he wanted to own a tract of that land. Um, There was no way in hell he was going to get it, but uh, he wanted it. And so he was contacting this guy, John McTaggart, out, you know, um, who was an acquaintance of his in the community. And he tried to give him a packet of papers basically about purchasing this piece of property on Oxford Lake. Within that packet of papers was a crude map of Oxford Lake that was hand-drawn by Gabriel, where he wrote, Body found, one of three, next to a line pointing to three X's in the center of the lake. He gave this to the guy that owned the land? He gave this to the guy that he was trying to get to negotiate the purchase of the land on his behalf. You know what? Just keep going, because I don't... (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know anymore. Mm. Yeah, this guy is, he's really something else. He really thinks he's doing something here. He really, really does. Gabriel finally stood trial for the murder of Rachel Timmerman in 2002. The prosecution had a strong case to present, obviously. And they presented, and I'm going to go through some of it, a history of his propensity for violence, including other physical and sexual assaults against people ranging in age from two to elderly people. Wow. It included testimony related to arsons that he committed uh, in revenge for small alleged wrongdoings from other people. I'll describe some of those in a minute. Important thing about this case and what made it extremely unique in the landscape of Michigan is that one of the big questions that the jury was going to have to answer was whether or not this was a federal case because Rachel's body was found in national forest land. Ah. Mm-hmm. This part of Michigan is, like I said before, extremely densely forested. Uh, this national forest is the Huron-Manistee National Forest. It used to be mm-hmm. two. One was the Huron, one was the Manistee, and then they decided then they to kissed. connect them. Yeah, and then they kissed, they met in the middle, and now it basically, like, you know, you're going north, Again, you kind of get past that Grand Rapids. You are pretty much in Huron Manistee. It's pretty much the top, I would say, third of the mitten is Huron Manistee. Not entirely, obviously, but it covers a huge swath of the top of the mitten. It's very, very large. I crunched the numbers. 5% of Michigan is actually national forest, which is a a very significant amount of land compared to other states. That is a good amount of land. Mm Mm-hmm. And Oxford Lake is on National Forest land. So the issue here is that uh, there are very dire stakes on the line with regard to whether this is a federal case or a state case. If it's a state case, then Gabriel is looking at life in prison. If it's mm-hmm. a federal case, he's looking at potential death penalty. Oof. So these are two very, very different things. And the outcome of this depends on whether or not Rachel was dead or alive when she entered the lake. The medical examiner testified that Rachel was most certainly alive when she was placed in Oxford Lake, that she knew what was happening to her, 
that she was bound and chained and duct taped while alive and dropped into Oxford Lake. Oh, and you said the only part of her face that was exposed was her nostrils. nostrils. Yeah. That is so cruel. It is. Like, that's an incredibly sadistic way to kill somebody. Yeah, I think so, too. And it's also, I think, I think Gabriel would be smart enough to know that drowning is a particularly painful and awful way to die. Yeah, yeah. And I think that he did that very much on purpose. Oh, I think, I think he, he wanted did. her to suffer. He wanted her to suffer because, I mean, otherwise he would have killed her before he put her on the lake. There was no ne- reason to leave her alive and to make her suffer like that. Exactly, exactly. Now, it was really, really important. This was extremely important testimony. This medical testimony was crucial. Because if there was any implication that Rachel was dead before she um, met Oxford Lake, then there would be enough probable cause to say that it did not happen on federal land, that she was just dumped there but not killed there, which would make it back to a state case. Mm -hmm. The rest of the trial, like I said before, hinged on a lot of testimony about Gabriel's violent activities outside of what he did to Rachel. Uh, And they were extremely intense i'm going to go through a few of them know that there is there are a lot more examples i have like five pages of examples of just the other awful things that he did to people one example was that um he was upset with this woman at one point named wilma um, because she refused to let him take her son to see his father who was uh gabriel's brother david a few days later her house was set on fire Jesus. Yes. Uh, in 1991, John Terwillinger, who lived about a half a mile from Gabriel, was drinking some beer at a, a bonfire outside of his house. Gabriel came over and was acting very, very obnoxiously, and Terwillinger asked him to leave. Gabriel was absolutely enraged at being asked to leave. And as he was leaving, he said, every one of you are fucking dead. A little while later, bullets were heard sailing over the top of the house. Uh, the police were called, and when they arrived, Gabriel was sleeping on the couch with his rifle hanging on the wall and spent bullets everywhere. He's not even trying to hide this shit. He's such a fucking psychopath. Yeah. The next day, he came over and apologized for his actions. But before he left, kicked Terwillinger's 13-year-old son hard in the leg. He was also accused of a previous sexual assault in 1996, uh, where he went after the wife of a friend of his that he grabbed at her and refused to leave until the husband came in and threatened him at gunpoint. He had also tried to sexually assault his sister-in-law's niece, while she was underage, when he was told to leave, he killed her dog. Wow. Mm-hmm. There was another wow. example I wanted to share with you. Let me see. Okay, go for it. Sure, I'm not broken. Yeah, sorry. I kind of oh. lost all faith in humanity. Yeah, here's a, some, a few more instances to make you lose your faith in humanity. 
Later on in that year, in 1996, which again was the same year that he raped Rachel, so he was just on a tear in 96, he rented a room from this guy, Tom, and one of the other, it was a huge house, like a, um, sounded like it was like a triplex maybe, yeah. um, multiple apartments. One of the other occupants of the apartments told uh, Tom, the landlord, that Gabriel had threatened to kill him and throw him in a river. Another one of the occupants made an accusation that he saw Gabriel entering her room and uh, exposed himself to her. The next day, Tom himself saw Gabriel masturbating while staring into Tom's 12-year-old daughter's window. Yeah. He, at that point, was told that he needed to leave, that he was being evicted. Yep. When this happened, Gabriel approached Tom's wife and threatened her with a knife and then threatened to kill Tom by throwing him in a river. In 1997, he accused a neighbor of mowing his lawn and (sighs) was so pissed off that this guy had mowed his lawn that he set fire to his house. Okay. Yep. He was accused of punching a friend's 10-year-old son in the head after he pissed him off. He was in general known to hurt people's animals when he was mad at them, when he had confrontations with them. This was a really, really awful example, but he had an across-the-street neighbor named Charles Cass who had a small family, and um, Charles Cass thought that Gabriel had taken his dog. Gabriel said, yeah, I took your dog. I put him in the back of my truck, but it jumped out and died. Later, Gabriel goes to the Cass house with a golf club in his hand and a serrated knife in his pocket. He tells Cass to shut up about this and that he would snipe anyone in the town from his house. He threatened to kill Cass and his wife. He shot his gun at Cass's house. Um, when Cass called the police, they heard a shotgun. The police officers heard a shotgun being discharged from the second floor of Gabriel's residence directed at the Cass home. Mm-hmm. Right after that, Gabriel came out of the house. The police detained him and inspected the second floor of his home. In his home, in Gabriel's home, they found a mattress on the floor. At the head of the mattress was a frog laying on its back, dead, with its legs spread out. There was also a doll nearby in a similar position. Both the frog and the doll appeared to have both dry and wet ejaculate on them. The fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Also in 97, he was seen aiming his rifle at a two-year-old. And again, there are other examples. I'm not going to go through all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. At trial, he also at one point was so angry at his defense team that he tried to make uh, an argument that he should be able to defend himself. And at one point, actually, yeah, right. Like, (laughs) you're going away. Yeah, have fun with that. He was so frustrated by his defense counsel's uh, what he perceived to be their incompetence that he punched his defense attorney in the face at trial. Like, I guess. How has he not been in prison before this? Like, he is clearly making no attempt to cover up his crimes. He is committing them out in the open, Mm -hmm. not hiding any evidence. 
Yeah. Why was he walking the street? I mean, he had a record for some small things, you know? So it's not like when he went to jail after the arrest for Rachel's rape that that was the first time that he'd been in jail. Mm-hmm. But he'd never been in jail for very long. He was always able to manipulate somebody into making his bail for him. Yeah. And I think that he... I didn't find anyone to directly say this, but these are really, really, really small towns. Yeah. And he's really connected to pretty much everybody doing crime in those small towns. And I think that he was a really threatening figure in this area. I think that he was notorious. I think that people were pretty scared of him. Mm-hmm. And he also did a lot of things that, like, you know, like he shot his gun towards somebody's house, right? What charge do you bring down on somebody for that? Uh, I feel like there's some kind of reckless. Yeah, like some kind of like reckless activity, like reckless endangerment kind of stuff. But if you arrive there every time after it's over, you're not going to pour the investigative resources into proving that somebody shot a gun at somebody's house. That's not a quote unquote good use of police time necessarily. You know what it reminds me of? Hmm. It reminds me of the Ken McElroy case. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I was like, I hope you're about to talk about Skidmore because this is very, very, very similar to that in my view. It's so much like Skidmore. Yeah. Like everybody so knows this man is mm-hmm. a psychopath. Yeah. Everybody's terrified of him. Yeah. But he just somehow manages to fly under the radar. Yeah. I think that he, same with Ken McElroy. I think that he was scarier than law enforcement. I think that he was scared of nobody, mm-hmm. which I think Ken McElroy was the same way. Like, I don't yeah. think that anybody scared Ken McElroy. Nope. Um, and I think that people were scared of him. Like, mm-hmm. he was completely unhinged. And he does so many things in retribution, right? Like... You piss me off. I'm going to set your house on fire. Imagine what he would do if you went further than just pissing him off mm-hmm. and tried to press charges against him. And I think Rachel didn't know that. You know, I was going like, to say, she didn't we know saw this exactly guy. what happened to Rachel when she pressed yeah. charges against him. Exactly. And prior to the card game, she didn't know him from anybody else. She knew Mikey, the nephew, but... She would. She was not a part of this ring of people that Marvin Gabriel was otherwise involved in. So she was coming to this completely unaware, I think, of his capabilities. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah. While he was in custody, he was also a complete nuisance while behind bars. While he was in custody, he did things like try to make a shank out of chicken bones. (laughs) He carved a fake knife out of soap uh, and tried to use it to um, threaten the guards to allow him to escape. Marvin Gabriel had hepatitis C, and knowing that, he would throw his own feces and urine at prison staff, hoping to infect them. He also threatened to cut himself and spread his blood around people that he disliked or the jail guards in order to make them sick. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Marvin Gabriel was found guilty. The evidence against him is 
absolutely <laughs> slam dunk, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There's no question. He was found guilty, and he was found guilty federally. So mm-hmm. he was sentenced to lethal injection. All right. After his sentencing, he was sent to uh, the state penit- or the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, where so many of the people that we discuss on this show have ended up. Oh, Jesus. Um, it's like a celebrity, mid-wretched celebrity row. It really is. It yeah. really is. While locked up, even after his sentencing, he harassed Rachel's family. He sent them letters and phone calls. He accused them of killing Rachel and kidnapping Shannon. He asked for pictures of Shannon. He, at one point, started a 501c3 nonprofit called No More Missing Children to help prop up his accusations that the Timmerman family had been the ones to disappear, Rachel and Shannon. Oh, fuck off. Mm -hmm. Rachel's dad, Tim, complied. He sent the pictures. He allowed Gabriel to set up a website um, and flyers with this organization out of the desperate hope that Shannon could be found. Mm-hmm. He also sent letters to the case fam or the Cass family, accusing them of murdering Rachel and hiding the baby. Mm-hmm. He sent letters accusing to people accusing them of this left and right. Yeah. I don't know what his purpose was in doing that, but... Boredom, chaos, he doesn't sound mm-hmm. like he needs much of a motivation for anything. Yeah, no, I think he was chaos incarnate in so many ways. Now, one thing that was interesting about kind of how this case would end up kind of bumping around the system, it's not as though when you get sentenced to lethal injection that you are immediately put to death. Oh, right? Jesus, no. That's movies. That's not reality. <laughs> In reality, people sit on death row for a very, very, very long time because they are entitled to exhaust their appeals. Yep. Right? And in 2011, his legal team proposed an appeal based on the fact that when the case was originally tried in Michigan, that the jury knew that they were deciding between a federal and a state situation but that it was not made clear to the jury that the difference would be life versus death. Mm. So they made the case that it was not clear that in making that decision on where to prosecute that they would be deciding between putting him in potential life sentencing or putting him in potential death row. They won that appeal. I'm surprised that the jury got to decide that. Yeah, that it was, it was federal or... It was a very odd case. Yeah, that's weird, but yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, in 2013, that sentencing appeal was overturned and the death penalty mm-hmm. reinstated. <laughs> he is currently on death row in Terre Haute. He does mm-hmm. not have an execution date currently, but I don't see it being anytime soon because he has not yet exhausted all of his appeals. Mm-hmm. In July 2002, some canoeists found Wayne Davis's body in Twinwood Lake, which is another body of water in the same national forest where Rachel's body was found. Mm-hmm. The bodies of baby Shannon, Robert Allen, and John Weeks have never been found, but all are presumed dead. Yeah. That's fucked up. It is. It is. So really what this case is, in my view, is... A really interesting example of 
like you said before, an extremely narcissistic person with a God complex and a power trip, I think essentially creating like a little cult of personality amongst these other people that, you know, were involved in drugs and petty crime and things like that, that he could manipulate into assisting him with these things, right? Wayne Davis, even though he was going to testify against him, posted his bail. Mm-hmm. John Weeks, I don't know if John Weeks knew that he was luring Rachel and Shannon to their deaths, mm-hmm. but he knew that he was luring them to Marvin Gabriel. Yeah. And that Marvin had convinced him to do that. There was some witness testimony that said that um, they thought they had seen Marvin with John on the boat. And I think that note that he sent out to McTaggart with the, the picture of the lake and there being three bodies in there, I think those three bodies are Rachel, Shannon, and um, John Weeks. Yeah, yeah. It is very unlikely that Shannon's, if Shannon's body is in that lake, it's very unlikely that it's going to be found. Just knowing how those lakes are, there were attempts to drain the lake to look for yeah. her. So, But it's so muddy. You can drain it and it's... Yeah. And they, I mean, they almost entirely drained it. Thousands of gallons of water yeah. were drained from that lake. But some of the investigators, just to see kind of what it was like down there, actually attached themselves with about 60 pounds of cinder block and walked around that pumped out lake to see kind of what would happen uh, to their own bodies. And they sunk up to their knees in the muck down there. Yeah. So I think kind of scientifically what happened was that, you know, Rachel was weighed down by those cinder blocks, Mm -hmm. but the decomposition gases essentially being heavier than the cinder blocks floated her back up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's not yeah. going to happen for Shannon. Sure, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's not clear to me why it wouldn't happen to John Weeks um, mm-hmm. other than just I mean so much of it is just happenstance. Luck. Yeah. Yeah. It's happenstance. Just happenstance. It's luck. It's was he weighted down by this or that mm-hmm. or was he weighted down more um, it's which possible. is possible. It's yeah. possible that he was also in another lake. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that suggests that he's in there, too, is the map. Yeah. Yeah. Which we know that he likes to fuck with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he frequented this entire park, like this entire area and at all these little lakes. Right. So there was the lake that Wayne Davis was found in is 10 miles away from Oxford Lake. Like it's all very, very close to each other. And they're all that like mucky boggy kind of swampy type of little lake so um, they're all going to have a very similar topography yep and so that concludes the case of rachel timmerman and marvin gabrian i fucking hate him i hate him Me so too. much I, uh, I just i don't understand why we don't take all of these like lead up incidences more seriously you know like, oh, he was arrested, he spent a night in jail, maybe he did a couple of months. Mm. But, like, when you see those patterns emerging, yeah, like, you have to be able to do something. Yeah. I mean, it really, you know, one of the things that um, I was thinking about a lot with this case, uh, well, two things. So one of the things I was thinking about a lot is that in some of the kind of aftermath of it, so I talked about Tim Timmerman, uh, Rachel's dad, his brother is actually, like, a pretty successful author. 
John Timmerman. Uh, he's also a professor. The two of them wrote a book together uh, called The Color of Night about mm-hmm. Rachel and her case. And in that book, they describe Gabriel, I think, really succinctly. They say, quote, he's a self-possessed, egocentric, calculating monster. We didn't want to glorify the killer in this book, but that it was important to immortalize Rachel and Shannon, which was the reason that they wrote the book. And I do think that, I think that Marvin Gabriel, in some ways really thrived on other people thinking that he was very, very powerful. And there's a part of me that um, thinks that if he knew that he was publishing a book, but the book was like, only in a small way about him, that that would be a a major blow to his ego. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, What was the other thing I was thinking about? He's a guy that needs to be the center of attention at Mm -hmm. all times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, about, like, why why wasn't this caught in some, like, continuum of observation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really says a lot about how, you know, in so many ways, like – we have a very like regulated society, right? Like we like to think so. We like to think so. We <laughs> like to think that we have this like hugely responsive and protective system of laws to keep us safe and secure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in reality, like when you think about police resources, you think about these small town sheriff's departments that are itty bitty. Mm-hmm. And you've got somebody that's like a public nuisance, like Marvin Gabriel, but does things in such a way that finding the proof of him doing something is not necessarily worth the expenditure of money, time, effort, because those kinds of things are really hard to prove afterward, right? Yeah. Like proving an arson is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Unless you observe it, proving somebody shooting a gun at somebody else's house is really, really hard. Proving that somebody killed your dog is really hard. And it's not high enough stakes, I think, to be very high on law enforcement priority lists, right? I I, I can see that from, like, an individual incident list or, an in, like, looking at it as individual incidences. Yeah. But I also think, like, you looking at his pattern of behavior and this is where like we talk about like the a lot of these occurred in small towns Mm -hmm. that didn't necessarily communicate with each other because they weren't big enough incidences to be communicated Mm -hmm. and how much that lack of communication and this very like insular way that we look at crime and we look at law between this county and the next county and this state and the next Mm -hmm. state there's no communication and therefore these things fly so far under the radar until it all comes out in a situation like this. I also think it's a situation where it is, even if that communication did happen in like Mm -hmm. some ideal hypothetical situation, Mm -hmm. the next question is responsibility. Who is responsible for monitoring and intervening on a Mm -hmm. series of events like this to whom does that responsibility fall Mm -hmm. we don't have a criminal justice system that is set up to follow people long range right i mean we could we could 
and it would be i think highly beneficial to think about it in terms of like i think to think about it more in like a social services lens right yeah Yeah. i think that is something that ideologically could prevent there being more marvin gabrians in the future Um, yeah i'm not even thinking of this in terms of like a putative aspect of it but like mm -hmm. some kind of intervention yeah some kind of tracking sure putative in this guy's case because he's a bag of shit Mm -hmm. but for a lot of people providing some of those social services and things like that even if there was any way to intervene on this guy before these things happened yeah and you think about how we do this with kids Uh right um and you think about like you know a, a child makes a threat of violence against another kid or against their school or against whomever Mm-hmm. There is going to be a formal risk assessment. There is going to be required mandatory psych evaluations before that mm-hmm. child is returned to school. There's going to be all this tracking, all this follow-up. There's going to be social workers involved. There's going to be uh, a CPS is going to be involved. And, like, sure, we have adult protective services, but it's not used in anywhere the same way, right? Well, and adult protective services is for adults at risk. It's mm-hmm. not for, you know, it's for tracking you know, the abuse of elderly folks with dementia mm-hmm. or disabled adults and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's not for anything else. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Child Protective Services covers that, the other gamut, right? Mm-hmm. Like we use that and that would be something that you could, you know, potentially look back on and say, you know, this child has had many case reports, many evaluations, many things that, you know, are leading up to this behavior. Because I think of CPS functioning as this umbrella for protecting kids, right? Whether Mm -hmm. that's from themselves or from others. So, you know, if a child makes, if I know of a child that has made a suicide attempt, that is a CPS call. So we we have a different system for that. Mm -hmm. We have the SAS, I forget what that stands for, Screening and Assessment Services something. Hmm. And they do assessments of risk they do follow-up care for like three to six months afterward that sort of thing Hmm. sas is fucking great i mean it sounds like it yeah i mean our language in indiana is pretty loose assistance solving problems that may result in abuse neglect exploitation or delinquency of children it's that delinquency moment that maybe is the difference between how indiana deals with it and how illinois does i don't know But again, like, what if we had any of these things for anybody else, right? (sighs) Illinois was supposed to be trialing an expansion of mental health services Mm. so that they would be able to send mental health workers out for things like domestic violence, Mm. for things like, you know, this person seems to be having a psychotic episode, blah, 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 blah. They're violent. We think it's related to psychosis or... Mm. Is situations like that, but it's incredibly underutilized because they put so many restrictions on when those services are allowed to be used to the point Mm. that, like, they were used, like, three times in a year. That's interesting. They just choked out any way that they would be able to be used effectively. Mm. That's sad. Mm Mm-hmm. That's sad. Because there's just a lot of potential there, untapped and unused potential to be a a big help. People like to make fun of, like, the idea of, like, therapists showing up to, like, people that are getting violent because of psychosis, when in reality, to us, that's in a fucking day's work. Yeah. Like, that is literally, like, 
okay, friend, do you want a coffee? Yeah. And, you know, like, this is maybe why I bristle a little bit at the kind of our earlier conversation about Jackie crossing that line with Rachel. Mm-hmm. I I understand it professionally, but I also think in the absence of anybody else looking out for her, better to cross a professional line than to have her be, you know, cast to the wind without somebody who was in her corner that was also trained in helping people with their own mental health and other issues. Until that person loses their license and they're no longer allowed to do that for anybody. Right. I mean, there's obviously professional like, consequences, but I think like, yeah, and I, like, but I think the, the, the professional question is a little bit different from the moral question. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'm just, eh. <laughs> I flinch at crossing those professional boundaries because I know the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. I that said, there needs to be some kind of there needs to be something different that is more moral and more humane yeah. for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that what Jackie did was professional or good for her career, but do I think it was good for Rachel? Yeah. I also like because I have it happens too much professionally that that is from an outsider's perspective, we can see it as well intended and it becomes really mm-hmm. toxic. It becomes grooming behavior. Oh, yeah. That same sure. situation with any other counselor could become incredibly risky. Yeah. Like you're putting a lot of trust into that person that's violating professional boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. I had a therapist at one point that uh, I think we've talked about it before. Like she ended up kind of steering me towards decisions that I think were exciting to her but not actually good decisions for me to make Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah because she was like kind of romanticizing our relationship and making it more of a friendship that she was trying to sort of materialize it was very strange and put that in the hands of a 13 year old yeah yeah like that's that's i don't disagree i I just empathize (laughs) i don't disagree i I I just empathize I do too I do too we are completely off topic we are and but you know I think it's it's all food for thought and um you know to get us back on topic like I just think that Marvin Gabriel killed at least five people Mm -hmm. those five people and their families deserve justice I hope very much that those other bodies are found for Mm -hmm closure for justice for um for proper burial for dignity um i very very much hope those things happen i will be curious to see how long he sits on death row if he's ever able to um, overturn his um that decision via another appeal i doubt it but i'll be curious to watch but i think either way what this all boils down to is a young vulnerable person who was lost at the hands of an absolute monster and I want to recognize that you know Marvin Gabriel was a manipulator extremely violent um I think in many ways like this case is notable because of the the federal versus state issue and that's why people know about it but I think what's more important about it is um and that in many ways, it is kind of a a warning to us about, like, what kind of monstrosity can live in people. Yeah. That's my, I guess, soapbox about it. So why don't you shut me up and tell me about next time?
Oh, from one monster to the next. So next episode, if all things go well and I can maintain my sanity and finish this research. Is it finally Ted Kaczynski? Yes, it is. Oh. I keep going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole with this man. Mm-hmm. And each one is more insufferable than the other. Sounds delightful. <laughs> so this will be a multi-parter. Mm-hmm. It is, like, there's no way to cover Ted Kaczynski in one. No, we'll have to plan out how we record it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't have anything written as of right now. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Oh, no. Like, normally by the time, like, we do this, we do your episode, I have my next one written and ready to go. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not even done with the research, because like I said, rabbit hole after rabbit hole. Yeah. Um... Yeah, we will be covering um, the life and the crimes of Ted Kaczynski. I feel like Ted Kaczynski is one of those people that when you read and do a lot and you listen to a lot of things about him, people are like, he's a monster, but he was such a genius. And look at these writings and this, that, and the other. Mm. And I don't want to do, I don't want to go there because I don't yeah. think it's valid. Like, yeah. will we be like critiquing it or are we just kind of avoiding it? We'll go through it. We'll probably critique it. Um, Just got to know which hat to bring to the party, you know. I'm very ranty today. I'm so distracted today. I don't know why. I did nothing but sit in this chair for like 10 hours today. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we should stop. Basically, my friends, come back for Ted Kaczynski. We're going to have a lot to say. It's going to be very interesting. I think I'm curious to see what our next like couple of episodes are like because i too am really considering like revisiting a notorious case from a similar time period because i feel like we're just far enough in our cultural imagination from when those things actually happened that Mm -hmm. we can have a much different conversation about them than we had in real time even though you know i remember these cases as like a little kid you know yeah yeah that's kind of how i feel about this i was like i really want to hash these out Mm. these stories that we grew up with yeah me too so come back for that friends i think it's going to be really interesting and we are grateful for you you know rolling with us and listening to these stories and um as always i think if we can give you any kind of charge other than make some noise um (laughs) in my view it's just to hold space for um for the people that we talked about today to you know connect with the cosmos in whatever way you prefer to for a moment on behalf of these people correct keep them in your mind keep them in your thoughts and yes try to be a good person yeah yeah exactly and uh speak up you know yeah so on that note we're gonna shut up and go to bed (laughs) where some of us are gonna write some quizzes about hamlet some of us are gonna go research more ted kaczynski (laughs) nice nice all right friends uh please feel free to reach out to us on the socials we are at midwretched everywhere we would love to hear from you as far as case recommendations and things like that if you are willing to please give us five star reviews wherever you like to leave your little stars and we're always happy to hear from you and happy to know that you're out there listening to us Happy. Happy. All right, bye. Bye, friends.
Texas, I was talking to uh, my two other besties, and we were just counting up the people that we went to high school with that murdered people. Oh, good. How many? It's more than one. Three. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was a big high school, to be fair. 